moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to another episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your friendly neighborhood host, Dr. Jim, your resident talent retention attraction development nerd. We are once again flying in missing host formation. So you get the uh, benefit of my silly Lawrence Brown impression. <laughs> the other host, I am your other host, Lawrence Brown, also known as LB. Hello, LB. Hello. See, told you it was dumb. <laughs> and we are in for another fantastic conversation. I'm super excited to have our next guest on. And I want to introduce Mary Beth Achterberg. Mary Beth, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, thank you, Jim. It's great to be here. Hello, everybody. Great to spend a little time with you talking about one of my favorite topics, leadership. I'm Mary Beth Achterberg. I'm currently the vice president of IT solution delivery with Molson Coors Beverage Company where we have a portfolio of products, frankly, not just beer, where you know most of our core products are we've expanded beyond beer and have some really exciting beverages. You could drink a Molson Coors beverage 24 hours a day. So I think that's pretty cool. I think I might take you up on that challenge, by the way. <laughs> that's awesome. We should have a challenge, a 24-hour day Molson Coors beverage drinking challenge. That's a really good idea. So I have about 180 people in my organization that do solution development and delivery from commercial integrated supply chain, BI analytics, infrastructure, and then support the process through project management, scrum mastering, testing, and QA. So it's really exciting. It's both in Milwaukee and in Romania. We have a development center there too. I'm a mother of two grown children and a wife to Jeff. And we have a small dog named Winnie who keeps everybody Everybody entertained. She's very funny. What uh, what kind of dog? She's a, a teddy bear dog. She's a mix between a Bichon Frigé and a Shih Tzu, about 15 pounds of fluff and trouble. But she kept us busy through the pandemic. We didn't know about the pandemic, and we got her in January of uh, 2020, and she helped us through all that. So it's, she's been a good addition to the family. Thanks for sharing that little bit of an intro. Now, our regular listeners know that I'm prone to being a fanboy at some point in the show. And it just so happens in this particular show, I'm going to actually do this pretty early. Yeah, okay. So Mar Mary Beth got pretty tactical as far as her influence within Molson Coors, but I think it's important to know for the audience to know and, and chime in at any point, Mary Beth. Mary Beth has been in involved in some pretty significant transformation initiatives within Molson Coors, and that's had, uh, she's been part of the leadership team that's driven some pretty impressive uh, business results as a result of those transformation initiatives. I think it's important to share with the audience a, a little bit of the impact that oh. you've had since your time here. I think the, the real reason why I was brought aboard was to change the way that we deliver value and to really think about the fact that information technology is not 
this group of nerds in the basement you throw orders at. They are really a business function that enables all other business functions. And if you don't believe me, shut off your system and see how well you do. You're not going to do too well. One of the messages that I've been sending at Molson Coors is these IT folks are really your business partners. They're really interested in taking a finite investment, which is the IT budget, and making sure that it's going towards the largest value in the organization. And so through that, we've been implementing Safe Agile as a way of delivering technology and technology value to the business. And really through the whole scale of a framework from lean portfolio management and the way that you think about investments to the delivery teams in Kanbans and scrums, making sure that we're focusing on the things that are the most important to bring value to the customer, new products to market and return to the shareholders, because that's also very, very important. Keep flying as a business. Yep, absolutely. There's been some pretty significant business impact too. Over the last six months, there has been some substantial business impact in terms of profitability, revenues, growth, that sort of stuff that uh, you've been a part of leading the charge on. So hats off to you. you. I think I'd be remiss if I left out your involvement in the women in technology and advancing that cause within Milwaukee. You're pretty active in that. Tell us a little bit about that initiative. I was fortunate to be chosen to be on the Southeast Region Board for Women in Technology Wisconsin that really has a three-prong approach. They want to look at wit for girls, making sure that young girls understand there are interesting careers, STEM careers, particularly in information technology. There's wit on campus, which is the pillar that I lead in Southeastern um, Wisconsin, mainly focusing in the Milwaukee area for the region. And so we're building out the program there. We've got a a professional connections program that we've really honed this year, and we're going to start looking at creating uh, campus club kits for WIT on campus so that if somebody wants to start a WIT campus club, they have everything they need to do that and connections back to the community. And then there's WIT at Work, and that program is actually the most uh, mature. They have a lot of really great programming. And so uh, I'd, I'd encourage anybody to go out and look at Wisconsin. It's uh, it's pretty exciting. So last year, though, what I did is also launch the WIT program at Molson Coors Beverage Company so that both the women that are in technology today could have camaraderie across that vast portfolio of products. They tend to stay in their siloed lanes, so there's not a lot of cross-pollinization. So I wanted to address that. But also to have other people outside of IT understand that there's adjacent careers that have a really nice pathway into information technology. And so we just launched that program last year. This year, we're handing over some of the leadership of the work streams to a few other really invigorating and uh, enthusiastic women. I sat in on a meeting this week and I was just blown away at their enthusiasm and the creativity that they're using to bring programming and women even outside of IT into the fold. So that's been launched. I'm really excited about that. There's a lot of runway there for sure. If those of you who are listening and watching aren't gathering by now, this is one of the reasons why I wanted Mary Beth on the show is that even right now, her current state is driving impact across multiple organizations in multiple ways. And when we look at the purpose of the show, this show 
is designed to drive all of those leadership lessons and all of those impact lessons down to the next generation of emerging leaders and young professionals so that they can actually advance their careers further faster. That's the purpose of the show. And we have a specific bet where we're focusing on the stories of women, immigrants, people of color who have risen to leadership and how they're advancing the cause in making it easier for that next group that's coming up. And that's part of the reason why Mary Beth is here. Your current state is pretty exciting, but I think how you got here is just as important a story to tell. And this is what I'm looking forward to digging into. So we know where you are. Now let's get into the origin story. So how did it all begin? Tell us about how you grew up and and what that experience was like. So I grew up in a middle-class family in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I was the only daughter out of four children. One one child was lagging. He's about 13 years younger than me. So I really grew up predominantly with my two brothers, one older, one just 18 months younger. In a family where my dad was an engineer and my mother was a stay-at-home housewife. It's interesting when I talk to her about what her career aspirations were. She always says, that's what I wanted to do. I said, mom, you're one of the few women who actually got to do what they wanted to do to the fullest. And it's like, oh, really never thought about it that way. Because <laughs> there's a lot of women that had aspirations that couldn't because there wasn't a pathway for them to move in the direction they wanted. So I feel like the generations, my generation, the generation before, and certainly the generations that preceded us were really paving the way. We stand on some shoulders of women who not typically like my mother's situation where she had the opportunity to fulfill her dreams, really didn't have the pathway forward to realize their aspirations, the things, their purpose for their life, frankly, the things that they were designed to do. That's some really good context. And we're going to dig into that a little bit more as we go on. But I think one of the things that always puzzles me about the current conversations around a lot of these topics is a lot of people that I talk to sometimes reflexively talk about back in my day or when I was coming up, I had to do this and this, and I had to go uphill through snow both ways. <laughs> and the pe- the people coming up today have it so easy. And I always squint and raise an eyebrow at that sort of thinking. Fundamentally, I believe our responsibility as people is to make it easier for the next group of people coming up to move the ball further and, and faster. Like where do, where in the rule book does it say that just because you had to struggle and grind and go uphill both ways in the snow, that every other generation after you has to do the same thing. That seems dumb. So it's a good call out that you're drawing on the whole standing on the shoulders of people that came before us, because that creates a responsibility for us to pay it forward for the next groups that are coming up. So that's some great context that you set there, Mary Beth. Growing up in the era that that you came up in, give me a little context of what was expected from your family and how did that shape you through grade school, high school, that sort of stuff? I was introduced in this world with a, a curious mind and always questioning why, which really consternated a lot of people because I grew up in a very traditional household. Girls were like, my mother's aspiration was to be a housewife. I think that's what my parents thought that is what my aspiration should have been. And in fact, they required that I go to a a Christian school in Texas. And I I think in their mind, it was that I would find a husband and become a pastor's wife, which really wasn't a good idea because I didn't play piano very well. I sing okay, but it really wasn't what uh, I was designed to be. That wasn't what my aspirations were. And having a strong female voice in the 60s, 70s, and 80s wasn't always respected. 
So the fact that I was the way I was, that I always wanted to know why, which really bothered a lot of my male teachers. They didn't appreciate the fact that I was always questioning. I should just uptake the information. I want to know why things are. And in some cases, I want to know how I can change them. And that, I think, is the reason why at this point in my career, I'm really considered a transformational change agent wherever I go, because I see things. They're not quite getting you the results that they need. And so we move towards trying to make things, you know, situations, processes, outcomes better. And I've been, I was born this way. That song, I think it's uh, yep. got Lady Gaga. I was born this way. I was born a leader. Uh, I, I know that people say that uh, leadership is uh, a skill that you learn, which I agree with. But there are a few of us that were actually born this way. <laughs> and it was consternating because that wasn't expected of, of girls in the 60s. That, that really wasn't the expectation. I, I think I'm going to have a lot of call outs as we continue this conversation because you just hit at another one. So one of the things that Lawrence and I try to do on the show is there's a strong DEI bent to our show. But philosophically, we both agree Lawrence and I agree that in order for us to advance the, the the ball as far as we want to go, we need to establish common ground. So one of the things that resonated with what you just said to me was this idea of the expectations as you were coming up in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, know your role. And yeah. as a brown person, we're conditioned coming up in our careers, keep your head down, work hard, don't create too much noise because God forbid you don't want to be known as the loud brown person. So just keep your head down. And for a lot of people, that's how they navigate life. They don't really stick their neck out because they don't have those alliances or communities behind them that will back them up. Luckily or unluckily, I've never been able to, pardon my language, shut the hell up. So <laughs> as a generation zero immigrant, I've always been loud and probably not in the best way possible. But I think that's some common ground. Yeah. You and I couldn't have come from two more different backgrounds but we feel compelled to call out things and ask the question why. And I think that's one of the lessons that I hope people pick up as we continue to do more and more of these shows is that no matter how different we are, there's some fundamental principles that we need to advance. And the first one, or one of the first ones uh, that you mentioned is to question and engage that curiosity is because that's the only way that you actually advance solutioning is by questioning why things are the way they are. I agree with that hundred percent. And I think the reason why I was drawn to your show is because we need to really focus on the things, the common things that bind us rather than the things that divide us. That's the way we're yep. going to move forward and be productive as a society, as communities. It really doesn't, these differences are less important than the things that are the same. There could be a, a debate in that area, but I think on principle, I tend to agree. I think the issue is that in some cases, as we downplay those differences where those differences need to be celebrated, I don't think you're coming at it from that angle. I don't want no, to put words no, in your mouth, not. but I fundamentally agree that there is more that binds us together than makes us separate. And Let's start from there in how we can actually build a more equitable world. So sorry to go on this crusade no, no, or soapbox I, I, on it. <laughs> I'm, I'm completely aligned with you. I think celebrating yeah. the differences are the things. Look at all of us. It's beautiful. Diversity is beautiful. But diversity isn't the reason why you walk away from someone, right? That's the wrong message. The other interesting aspect about the conversations that we've had is that some aspect of human nature defaults to lumping everybody into groups. And I think an important thing that we need to reorient our mindset to is that we need to start seeing people as people. 
as individuals, yeah. because even within groups, every individual is going to be different. So let's connect as people and then work through those differences together. Because when you start lumping people into groups, it becomes so much easier to discount entire groups of people on the basis yeah. of some bias that you have. And that's not productive either. Oh, no, Sorry. it's true. I often wonder is uh, people see me now that I'm in this corner office, they, they think I'm an untouchable and it's, it should be exactly the opposite. Where I came up, the struggles I had, I was a single parent for 14 years, raising my daughter while I went to school and worked full time. I was on AFDC for a little while while she was a, a baby. What I tell people when I'm talking to them and I'm talking to all of you now, whoever's listening, is don't let those small things keep you from fulfilling your purpose because those are small things. When, if I use the example of a fine Persian rug, if you pulled that back off and looked at the back of a Persian rug, you'd see all these knots and threads and ugliness, but you flip it over. And if you use it as a metaphor for your life, it's absolutely beautiful. But along the way, it doesn't look so great. So I think don't discount people just because you encounter them at a certain point in their life and you think it's an untouchable person. It's quite opposite. I think they're used to not having people approach them. People don't want to approach me, but I think it's really, there's a story to tell and you should learn the story first. Wow. That's an awesome point. And I think if you're a professional radio person, that would have been like a perfect segue into where I want to go. So you hit on a bunch of stuff that talks about relating to you as an individual. So I want to pick that up and, and run with it. So we got a little bit of insight into what it was like growing up, what those expectations were. When you're looking at those expectations and what the expected traditional path was supposed to be, how did you navigate that conflict? You were naturally a curious person, an inquisitive person, and I would imagine a loud person in your own <laughs> way. How did you balance that and navigate through that stress? Because it had to be stressful dealing with the family expectations of this is where you're supposed to go and this is what you're supposed to do. And you're in this other camp where it's like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. In some cases, I complied. I did go down to that school. I ended up immediately on the leadership council, interestingly enough, even at 18 years old, and really found the ability to influence the agenda for a whole class of people for a year. So I think sometimes you comply with authorities in your life. You have to. We all have authorities in our life that we have to comply. And then you find a way to change within the system. So I did that. Now, I did rebel a little bit too and ended up marrying somebody that wasn't the best for me. And out of that union came my daughter, which has been a blessing through my entire life since I've had her. But uh, I think you find ways to navigate and be who you are, even in situations you don't choose. And, and so instead of pulling back and giving up or just completely rebelling, which is oftentimes going to cause your life to really go off the rails, you have to find a way to be yourself within the situation of, of not your choosing. And so that's what I did. There, there's something interesting in there that I, I want to pick at for a little bit. So I think from your explanation there, what I gathered was that there was an element of you that went along with that particular flow with the intent of changing the system from within. And then there's an element of you that you know, when I look at your career trajectory more recently, I'm not going to fit into this box and try to change it from within. I'm going to 
you know, look at things from radically different ways and try to change it that way. Was there a definite transition to that later way of thinking? I think where I started to really apply this, I'm going to be a rat, be who I am. I, I have certain thought processes and intellect that I know where something is right and something isn't right and it needs to be addressed. When I worked for Wisconsin Public Service in, in the 80s and 90s, I ended up leaving and starting my own business. After a little bit of a stint with a company that went out of business, frankly, so I left to work for a consulting firm and then they went out of business. So I started my own business and I learned a a lot, frankly, when you're the whole enchilada. And I think you've probably experienced this even with your with your podcast, when you're responsible from soup to nuts, everything that there's a lot of responsibility. And when you have people who work for you, then you really feel the, the weight of that and you are making decisions every day, but you're charting your own path. And I did that. I created some copywritten and trademark intellectual property that, that I marketed and, and made a living off of it. So I think having the ability to do that was the turning point for me. So then when I went back in and started working for corporate America, I didn't lose that. But I went back and again, thinking about how I can take all that I learned over the eight years, eight and a half years that I had my own business to change the way people think uh, about how they approach IT and engineering and and making a profit. So I think the turning point for me was when I did actually leave and, and started my own business. Because it, then you, you're dependent on yourself. I think um, corporate America is hugely inefficient if they're not thinking in an entrepreneurial sense. And having the ability to apply what I learned by running my own business, even though it was small, really makes me a different kind of employee. If you have an entrepreneurial bent in corporate America, my experience, because I have a pretty significant entrepreneurial bent to how I do things, that's why I always gravitate towards startup or accelerating growth organizations as far as where I've been. You get perceived in a more mature organization as a loose cannon, won't color within the lines, it, it, you know, won't stay in your lane, that sort of stuff. Did you experience that when you transitioned from running your own business and going into corporate America? And how did you navigate or change uh, or influence that perception and still make the impact that you did? What was the process you went through? So whenever you're an employee, whether you're contracted in as a consultant or employed on a W-2, you first have a responsibility to deliver results. So I make sure that wherever I'm working, they realize I'm going to deliver the results. I'm going to do the things that you need me to do. Because what that does in my mind, and hopefully in the employer's mind, is gain trust that, look, this person can actually do the job. And it should then open the opportunity for me to provide insight, input, new thought. This doesn't work quite well because can we look at it and and think about adding a a capability, doing an assessment? We need to dig in. It's not quite working. I also am a real proponent of making sure that you measure because you can have a hypothesis and it might be wrong. And yeah, I've got a lot of experience and I have, frankly, and my boss today, a a lot of respect for my knowledge. So that's helpful. But I don't want to create a hypothesis and expect him just to believe me. I want to go in there with data to say, this is my hypothesis. This is what I've observed. This is the data that proves that it's, I'm probably right. And here's the change that I recommend we make. So it's really about being a trusted advisor on top of delivering results. And so your first responsibility, regardless of how you're engaged with an organization, is to deliver the results that they asked you to do. Nothing uh, is worse than hiring a consultant that comes in, 
spends 20% of their time on what you ask them to do and frankly, what you're paying them to do and 80% of their time looking for more work. So the number one thing you have to do is actually deliver the results. And I think that's important in life. That's going to be a good, you know, takeaway coming out of this conversation. So I want to hit rewind real quick and build into that part of the story that we just talked about. So you had all of these expectations as you were growing up, you you went along with some of them as, uh, as you were going through, when you look at high school, college, and in your early, you know, career journey, what was the struggle or at least the back and forth that you had to navigate as you were finding your own way to, to where you ended up? I was a non-traditional student. So I had, I had my daughter and then was quickly divorced and I had to finish school. So I was very non-traditional. It took me a number of years to get my undergraduate, my um, bachelor's degree, and I worked at the same time. And so that was a struggle. Believe me, that takes all of your energy to be a single parent working a full-time job and going to school. So surviving all of that while nurturing a young life and really being an example of an independent woman so that she had that example really took up all my time. And that was the struggle. I remember doing my balance sheet, what my net worth was, and and it was in total. And that was sometime in the 1990s. The total of it was $14,000. And I was in my mid thirties. That was a struggle because it takes a lot of investment early on in order to get to where you need to be in the long run. And it takes really focused attention. And I know I could have done lots of different things with my time. I could have been out with my girlfriends. I have lots of girlfriends at that time, frankly, that are friends even yet today. I I could have been dating a lot. There's lots of things that could have bifurcated my attention. But I think really the message out of all this is you have to be extremely focused on what you want and, uh, and go for that and put your energies toward it. And so raising a young lady, a child, and going to school and making sure I could maintain my job were the three things that really had to have my attention at the, in those early days. So I didn't have time for my parents to influence me. Frankly, that's what I'm trying to say. By that time, I knew that the investment I was making in the next generation was more important than being concerned about expectations for my parents. And so even though I've come from a very tight family, at that point in time, there's a point in your life where your parents are no longer a parent-child. You have to have a transition, right, to this I'm an adult uh, in your family group, but I'm still an adult and I make these decisions for myself. And so that to me, when I had this next person, the next generation to be responsible for, really made that transition in my mind. Now, did it make that transition as quickly for my parents? Probably not. But thankfully, they loved me and and didn't give up. So you you just have to establish that boundary condition and do it in a loving fashion. And, And so... It's not always perfect. I wasn't always perfect at it, but uh, we maintain a good relationship today. So I, I guess it was successful in the end. One of the things that I'm curious about early career and in the era that all this was happening, you were going to school, you're a single mom, you're a full-time job. And this is in an era when the whole aspect of being a single mom, the optics of it isn't as well received, or I, I would argue it's still not well received now. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the weight of that, the weight of the optics, the weight of how you're perceived, whether it's right or not. Did you feel any of that? And how did you navigate that? I I totally felt it. I had friends that didn't want me when I, when I moved back to Green Bay and I moved from Dallas to Green Bay because I needed family support. I didn't want to raise my daughter alone in Texas. 
there were people that had been my friends that didn't really want me around. And I went through some of that. And they were concerned that the single lady was, I'll just poaching their husbands. And believe me, that was the last thing I was interested in. But yeah, there were people that that shunned me. And, and I think the important, the important lesson I learned is I know who I am. I know my integrity. They weren't there for the situation and they're judging me just by the outcome. So you really have to give people some grace and not just look at them and say, oh, they're that. Because I wasn't interested in poaching anybody's husband. I was just interested in surviving, frankly. And if the relationship wasn't strong enough for the current day, then I knew there was there were other people that I could form strong relationships with, other girl, women at work or at church or that uh, would be edifying for me at that time and, and for my daughter as well. And so you walk away from some relationships. They're not healthy. And, and so that's the lesson I learned through that. That whole concept of grace ties back into the group think that we were talking about earlier. We're so quick to lump people into groups based on whatever external criteria we happen to catch on. And then we make all these assumptions and we rule out entire swaths of people that could add significant value to our lives because we're tied up in our own perceptions of, of what we think we are. So yeah. that's an important takeaway. It's, it is what it is, but I think it's uh, important to call those things out as they come up in the conversation. When we're looking at your current state where you perceive that people around you think you're unapproachable, there is no more approachable aspect or relational aspect than talking about what you had to go through early in your career. You can't get any more real than that. So thanks for sharing that. No, absolutely. I think at this point, you know, what you mentioned earlier in the conversation where we should be giving back, you know, even Maslow talks about this as the self-actualization, you get to yep. a certain point and that's what life is about. I feel like I'm there, hopefully. And so in these, this section of my life and career, that's really what my uh, motivation is. Awesome. Let's continue on the journey. So you're navigating work, single parenthood, raising a daughter, and we haven't really gotten into the blocking and tackling of what the career aspect of it looks like. So mm-hmm. let's dive into that leadership journey and, and what that looked like and some of the, the obstacles that you had to navigate there. Obviously, you're coming up as a single parent and woman in leadership in a technical space. Share with the audience what that looked like as you're climbing. Oh, yeah. I didn't always have leadership positions formal, but you ended up getting chosen for programs and uh, opportunities that way. And and I've had some good mentors in those early days in Wisconsin public service. There's one gentleman, he's actually just passed away a few weeks ago, Dick Krieger, that really was a mentor and not a close mentor. It wasn't like every day, but he was the vice president of sales and marketing at the utility and saw that value in me and and put me into programs. And so that was my introduction into IT, frankly. The utility was going through deregulation, which meant that they really had to understand who those customers were behind the meters, which they didn't. And there was this whole program to introduce customer relationship management. At the same time, there was a, a new billing system being written, knowledge management, because the utility industry would hire swaths of people out of out of the military and they were coming up for retirement. So we needed to grab all their knowledge. And then just looking at business intelligence and analytics and data warehousing was just a thing that was starting. And 
I got the opportunity to be on that program. And it was my real introduction into IT. I'd done some things when I worked at Kiwani Nuclear Power Plant that had to do with IT, putting some systems in place to, you know, like business applications to make engineering run better. But this was really the opportunity to go full-time into this. It may not have been a formal leadership position, but it was the opportunity to demonstrate leadership capability on programs. And so that is, was my first foray in, into sorts of leadership roles. I, I think for me, it's always look at how can I make things better? What should I change? And that's our real leadership tenant, right? Because you, if nothing in life is static, there's no status quo. You're either growing or, or you're contracting. And so that for me was my way of demonstrating some of those capabilities that other words I wouldn't have been able to do in a formal role. So that's how I got into leadership roles. That's how people gained visibility to me. I was on another task, uh, a workforce 2000, believe it or not, task force. And that was led by the chief financial officer. And that's how I got visibility to her name. Her name was Diane Ford. And I think about her, how she encouraged me in those early days as well. And I appreciate that. In those early days, there were senior leaders that were looking at the workforce and looking for attributes of leadership, and then putting them in situations where they could flourish and develop at the next level. And I think that really is what what happened for me, frankly. You benefited by having some folks in your organization that had vision to identify you know, high potentials within their organizations. And, and at some point, they probably, it sounds like they advocated for you, but there's another challenge that you had to navigate though. You still have to look at your peers and you're in sort of technical spaces. And I know the demographics of those technical spaces. And I know yeah. the perceptions that existed as you were coming up and, and probably still exist today. And yeah. that's the credibility question. People again, have their own biases. And when they see a woman at a table within it or engineering or some technical or even non-technical, I don't know, I've always been in technical or technical adjacent um, spaces, you're automatically bumped down a peg. Oh, this person doesn't have anything uh, of value to offer. We're guys and we know all these things. My own family at the own dinner table. I remember being at the dinner table a long time ago and I was working for the energy industry, actually doing research in alternative energy generation. And there had been a news program and they were talking about it at the table. And my dad was like asking my uncles and my brothers, and here I am working for the utility. And it's finally, I said, I actually know the answer to your question. One of the reasons why I started this uh, MCBC WIT program, I, in my career, I've often been the only woman in the room and it is extremely difficult. And when I was younger, I was rather attractive. I think so that was the other part that didn't work for me. It's like always being the only woman in the room and having enough gumption to speak have a voice. Don't let them drown you out, which is, there are a lot of situations where they would have preferred I just walked away. So even in those situations, you would find somebody that would advocate for you. I would find an engineer or a manager, somebody who could relate to me. Either they had somebody in their family, their wife, who was working as well, and I would make it personal for them. It's like, how would you feel if somebody treated your wife your mother, your sister, your daughter, I need support. So that allyship was something that even if I wasn't getting it, I would evaluate 
the men around me and I would find the one that would have a listening ear so that they could be my ally in the situation. So what I'm hearing in terms of how you navigated that, you found your allies, you found your advocates within across all levels of the organization. The central point is you didn't sit down. You weren't quiet. Yeah. You spoke up and you add, that's an important call out too for anybody that's listening, regardless of what your demographics might be for you to advance your career. And, and, and let's just take the DEI element out of it. None of us are mind readers and we might be in a leadership position and have a team around us. And if nobody says anything to us, how are we going to know if there's a problem? So stand up, speak out, be loud, advocate for yourself, tell us what you need. And I think that's the other part of what you were saying in terms of your practical approach to overcoming some of these biases or some of these roadblocks. Some of it is just advocating for yourself and being vocal about it and letting people know that, hey, I need this and how do yeah. I get it? And always in a respectful way, because I think oftentimes and in recent years, the message has been, I, I agree with the messaging, but in some cases it's been delivered in, in a disrespectful manner. That's not the way to get your point across. Really, frankly, it, it doesn't help in the long run. But let me just flip that a little bit. As leaders, I agree with everything you just said, but also as leaders, part of our job is to be a little more observant and intuitive about what we see happening and not ignoring it. So if you see somebody that's being uh, discounted, not listened to. It's our responsibility to make sure that there's equal, facilitate equal conversation across the whole department, team, group, however you're organized. So from a leadership perspective, what I learned is when I get to this level, I'm going to act and I'm going to do different. And I'm going to make sure that I get equal conversation across the table from everybody. And so I really strive for that. I'm not saying I'm perfect at it, but it's always in the back of my mind because I don't want people to go through what I went through. I want it to be different for them. So I think there's a, a responsibility as a leader to be intuitive about those things and really think about them. Yeah, that's a great call out. So I want to I want to dig a little bit deeper. So we scratched the surface about perception and be often being the only woman at the table and discounted based on appearances on what value you bring to the team. So that I'm sure you've seen this happen in your career too. So you're surrounded by generally male dominated peers. And I'm sure you've had experiences where somebody who is clearly not cut out for the job of leader happens to be pushed into that role because they happen to be loud. And I guess to shorten this up, like how did you navigate scenarios where clearly incompetent men were promoted ahead of you? And like, how did th that's got to be a gut punch where you know that this person yeah. has no business in there? So, what were the things that you did to reorient yourself, remotivate yourself, and get over that hump? And what were the things that you did to? shore up any potential deficiencies so that didn't happen. Yeah. Sometimes you have no control over it. Let's just be very clear. I can yeah. remember working for somebody who I will not name the name who was loud and not I, as capable. I really want to turn this into a Jerry Springer show and start chair throwing <laughs> and name names. And this happened quite a long time ago, who was really upset with me because I was doing his job. It was like, well, you just came into the organization, but here's what I'm working on. And then I'm at a meeting like a month later and he's 
presenting my work without giving me credit. That's a gut punch. That happens. I, I think what I did and what I continue to do is make sure that you make relationships with other leaders that are managers peer group. And also there's this really healthy thing called a skip level. Now, how you go into that skip level and present information is really important. You have to be strategic about that. You can't, it's not a tattling session, right? But what you do is make sure that whoever that manager who's mistreating you or what I did anyway, was make sure that the finite details of that idea are, are not his. They're mine, frankly. And you present those finite details. They start to understand what happened. People are not stupid. They know what's going on. And that's how I would get pulled into other programs, informal leadership roles, uh, because you just be who you are with the intellect that you have. If it was your idea, there's an opportunity for you to go and fill in the blanks on some of the uh, information that your boss or whoever took the idea didn't present or couldn't present because they didn't have the thought process to create it and uh, and just make it known that way that. This is something that I have some expertise or interest in and some experience. So that's the way I would navigate that. I, I think because I had to survive, I needed a job. I couldn't just dump and, and run. You have to start to be strategic about it. And I don't think it's manipulation. I just think it's working within the system to make sure that people know that you have a certain uh, capability that may not be coming to light in the current way that the organization is uh, running. I wish I had the discipline and the patience to just not burn the stuff down because when I've been in those situations, I'm a pretty hair on fire person most of the time anyways. But if somebody stole my idea, I would be off my gourd in saying, what is going on here? (laughs) But here's the other thing that you have, because your intellectual property is yours, right? Nobody owns that. There are lots of ways, if you have some discipline in your life, that you can write things down, create intellectual property. You can go out now, thank God for the internet, spend $99 and copyright something. It's yours, right? Unless you've got an agreement with your current organization, don't keep yourself from taking those avenues so that you can protect your early intellectual property. And in those early days for me, were some of the most creative when I was trying to solve certain business problems and looking at the way a company that was a couple hundred years old almost uh, was running, it was like, well, I see some things that uh, need to be changed. They trained me well from a total quality management standpoint and statistical process control and lean. And so you start to see things when you're trained that way. Believe me, things all over the place when you're trained in those disciplines that need to be changed that can you can reduce waste and that you can create a better value for an organization. And looking at life with a critical eye, you start to create some intellectual property and you can go out and copyright those things. There are lots of avenues for you to protect your thoughts and, and ideas. You've navigated all these challenges and your current brand is a person that drives transformation at organizations that she's been at. What was the vision that fed into that brand that you've established for yourself over the last number of years across a couple of different organizations? How did you frame out what your vision and mission was and how did that translate into being this transformational leader that you've become? 
Oh, thank you. That's a good question. No, I, I think it's always, again, as I mentioned before, focusing on the outcome that you're hired for. But how you deliver that can be very deliberate and measured. And so it's really looking at it from a way that how can I use what they want me to do as a stepping stone to get to more change? And so how you line that out is from a strategic standpoint is, look, there's always an opportunity to continuously improve, particularly in human constructs. And in organizations, when there's more than one person, you're going to have dysfunction, which means by definition, all organizations are dysfunctional. And so if they have an eye to continuous improvement, which they all do, because there's always a target to save money on operational side, there's going to be an opportunity for organizational improvement and continuous improvement. And so that's really the brand, continuous improvement. How can we improve how we're delivering value? And that's been my brand. And that's why I'm brought in from a transformation standpoint, because there's either incremental improvement or there's large-scale transformational improvement. And I argue right now in the digital era that we're in, we're on the cusp of a real transformation. And there's lots of reading, a, a lot of documentation from different aspects that support that assertion. And my brand was born out of this continuous improvement mindset and making sure that we're always driving towards making it better. So listen, that really, when you have that mindset, it takes the ability to be personally offended out of the equation because your whole idea is how can I make this better? How can I make this better? I might be the reason why things aren't better. So I have to also evaluate myself as well. There might be some change I need to make in order to move to the next level. And it takes you out of that equation to be personally offended because your whole purpose is to make the system or organization in which you're working improve their efficiency to create better value for all constituents, everybody that's involved. That is a really interesting answer. And I'm curious. So when you walk into an environment, and this is going to be an oddball question, when you walk into an environment and you're observing how things are done, I want to get inside your head a little bit. Do you naturally chunk out what you observe into sort of process blocks and then build a map of that process and look for breaking points? Yeah, I, de I definitely do. It's uh, part of my DNA now. Uh, I have a real process and data orientation on every place that I work. In fact, I, I argue if you can show me how data flows through an organization, I can show you where you have inefficiencies. And I've been at this enough now to understand that even people fit into certain archetypes. And so they start to be slotted. And it, I'm not saying from a you know, DEI standpoint, just the way that they work. So I start to understand how I can interact with those people because they all start to fit certain archetypes. So process flows, I'm very process oriented. I understand how this works. Data flows, roles and archetypes of how people operate so that I can operate with them in a way that then uh, I can be successful and eventually everybody can be successful. So that is the way I think. Absolutely. Very process oriented. The reason why I asked that question, whenever I go into an environment, I, I describe how I see the world as Tetris. And as I'm watching things, I see how things fit around and I have this instinct for saying, okay, we need to do this with this block. And a frustration point for me is when I'm talking through this process. I'm like verbalizing what this process map looks like. And this is why I love Lucid Chart because now it actually allows me to 
map out the actual process and show people what I'm thinking. How do you bring people along that process map journey where they don't see how you see it? What do you do to move the needle and influence that way? Sometimes I'm successful and sometimes I'm not. But really, for me, a picture is a thousand words, right? So creating that picture for them and having a common conversation around that picture, I think is extremely helpful. Verbalizing isn't always effective. When you talking about adult learners, I don't even know the breakdown, so I'm, I'm not going to attempt to give percentages, but I think fewer people are auditory learners and more people are visual learners. And so creating that picture, right, is extremely important for you to have a conversation around. So that it's good that you're visualizing what you're verbalizing. And it is frustrating sometimes. And I know when I think about my Myers-Briggs, I'm an INTJ. I think there's 7% of the population in the United States is an INTJ. I actually do see things far before people do. And so for me, then it's a whole change management approach to bringing them along on that journey. There are a few that won't see it right away. Hopefully they're not the influencers, but if they are, then you just have to spend a lot of extra time with them laying out the evidence because they're probably people that have to have the facts in front of them, laying out the evidence that it's, it's, it's not working. There are other people, though, that just don't want you to be successful. And you have to, again, if they fit into that archetype where they're just not going to uh, come alongside you, then you have to figure out who do I go around How do I go around them to find the influencer they will respect so that we can all move forward together? But yeah, visualizations are really important. Listen, data analytics wouldn't be as popular as they are if visualizations weren't the way to communicate a lot of information in a simple way. We love stories and we love pictures. And those are the things that I use to to be more successful in making change more expeditiously. It's, it's it's not 100%. I'm not always batting a 1,000. Right now, I'm probably batting 500, but it's still pretty good in baseball yeah. terms. 500 <laughs> is Hall of Fame in baseball terms. So that's awesome. Thanks for that insight. I want to bring this uh, full circle. So this is a great conversation, but I, I, I want to tie this all together in terms of you look at your entire journey, your philosophy, the things that you went through, how does that show up in the things that you're driving now within Molson Cores, your mission, your vision, your purpose? How is that showing up in what you do and how you lead your people? Hopefully, once they see this, uh, aren't going to write in and say, that's not her. I really, I think the people that work with me know I care about them. That is the number one. It's not about me. At this point of the game, I'm a servant leader, and it's about enabling all of them to be successful. So I've risen to the top, and I didn't understand this when I was in my 20s and 30s, but getting here, you really understand that I'm here. I I now have to flip it. I'm serving all these people so that they can be successful. Some of them will like the ways they get served and others may not, but really that's my motivation because if they're all successful, I can't do 180 people's jobs. I have to help them so that they have the tools and the knowledge and the impediments are out of their way so that they can do their job and do it really well and orchestrate that across a really large portfolio, which, you know, is in the hundreds of millions of dollars with lots of projects going on. And so it really is my philosophy now is really being a servant leader. And and so I do that broadly. And then I deep dive in certain aspects of this organization. So one of them, again, is making sure women have an opportunity to, to rise in the organization I'm really blessed to be an organization that agrees with, they have a really strong DEI 
philosophy at Molson Coors. And so I'm, I'm really just standing on that platform and enabling it. So I'm thankful for that. It's not true everywhere. But so really the servant leader broadly and then deep diving in certain aspects of the organization, certain attributes of the organization to help them be more successful. Implementing Safe Agile, where the tenets of that are transparency and quality and alignment. Gosh, think about that. Transparency and alignment alone, if you can nail that down, they are powerful attributes of how you deliver value in your organization. And so really thinking about collaboration across large um, groups of people to deliver value, huge uh, mind-blowing and and game-changing sorts of ways to work, which aren't really apparent in a traditional siloed way of doing business. And it's all born out of really understanding systems thinking. And so if you have that, if you have that background, you start to see where the inefficiencies are when you have these really siloed uh, approaches to delivering value. So really, that's my philosophy now. I'm, I'm thankfully in a position where I can self-actualize according to Maslow's hierarchy needs and support so that they can overcome some of those obstacles. But here's the thing. Each individual still has the ability to take this up as a benefit being offered or deny it and and go their own way. And in some cases, it'll work out for them. In some cases, it'll be a tragedy that they didn't uh, take advantage of what's being offered. And that's the beauty of being able to work in, in this era. You still have the ability, most of us do, have the ability to make that choice for yourself. And so if you choose, and it turns out to be that you didn't take advantage of the opportunity, at least have the self-preservation to course correct sooner rather than later. Don't be so tied into your way of thinking. Do that self-evaluation on a regular basis so that you can go in a different direction and be more successful. This has been a phenomenal conversation. If you've uh, been listening to the show, almost every five minutes, I'm chiming in and saying, oh, that's a great point. We should write that down. So this is so packed with uh, so much great information. Uh, Thanks, Maribeth, for hopping on and sharing your story. It was a lot of fun. And we had some laughs in there too. So my terrible... LB impression, uh, notwithstanding. But before we wrap up, I want to I want to bring it full circle. So we went through your entire personal professional journey, and when we look at the intent of the show to help leaders in general and emerging leaders in particular move their careers further faster, what are the big takeaways that you want them to grasp onto from your own experience and your own personal professional journey? Great question. Yeah, I think the first point is be gracious to yourself. This is, you get one time through, maybe not everybody agrees with that, but I, that's my personal philosophy is one time through. Be gracious, right? Enjoy the ride. I think if I could go back and talk to my earlier self, that's the one of the messages I would give to me. Don't be afraid to be introspective and course correct. It's not that you're not being authentic, you're learning and learning means that you adapt and, and course correct. And that's okay. And then understand that people who are sitting in that corner office went through this journey, whether they're going to be, most of them will be absolutely honest with you about it. So make sure you don't act like they're not approachable. I think everybody I know, my peer group in particular, is approachable. They want to share their journey. They're at that point where they're self-actualizing. So they need to tell people about the journey. And you're going to find a lot of diversity in that 
in that conversation. I'm happy to talk to anybody about this journey because I think it's encouraging. I'm not, I, I probably have an unusual story. You wouldn't think that I would be telling you things about myself that are true, right? About AFDC, single parenthood, really working on on rising to this level. But that's what you'll hear. You'll hear a different version of that story from many people, and it should be encouraging to you. So that's what I'd want you to take away from that. Don't be afraid to approach people. Be gracious to yourself and and learn as you go through this journey of developing your career. I think one of the things that I, I definitely want to add into that list from your experience, and I think this applies for everybody broadly, you need to show up in the world and operate from a place of curiosity. Yeah. Be, be interested in the people around you and certainly seek out and satisfy that curiosity because you'll just by asking questions, you'll learn a lot and yeah. probably a lot of stuff that you didn't even think was possible when you're making those surface level value judgments based on any number of biases that you might have of the person that you're looking at. So I think that's important to operate in the world, not only with grace for yourself, but also curiosity. And that was the one big thing that I took away from uh, from the conversation. So again, great conversation. And I think uh, one of the things that I'll be interested in digging in further on a later episode with you, Mary Beth, is, uh, is all that great work that you're doing when it comes to women in technology in Wisconsin and also building leadership bench strength within Molson Coors and specifically female leaders, bed strength. I'll be looking forward to having you back to talk about those things because those are important topics as well. But it's been a phenomenal conversation. I had a lot of fun. We will be releasing this and having it available on all major podcast platforms. We're in the process of setting up our YouTube and TikTok channels so you can catch us there as well. I would definitely encourage anybody that's listening Make sure you find Mary Beth Achterberg of Molson Coors on LinkedIn. I reference the show, connect with her. She's going to be uh, super happy to help however she can in advancing your career. One of the key success factors for Mary Beth was that she was deliberate and intentional about building a network both internally and externally and looking for advice. So I would advise those that are listening who are early in their career, do that too. There are a lot of lessons in this show and it was a lot of fun to do. I'm glad that you came on and looking forward to uh, having more conversations. So thanks for joining us on Cascading Leadership. A lot of fun. We will see you again. And we are out. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.